She described being exhausted, but having to continue to look like everything was fine. They were doing their job, they were on, and they had to smile. However, when the firm did not give her the support that she felt she needed or wanted, when her freedom was being seriously restricted, she felt she had no choice and had to leave. Well, as we looked at last week, for those of you we continue today with the question, how should we, as Christians, respond to a freedom that we've received through the gospel? What does it mean to be free in the gospel? What does, how do we emphasize our freedom? What should it cause us, uh, how should it cause us to view our life, our rights, and our choices? As was read for us this morning, we'll, we'll be reading from, we'll be going through uh, the end of chapter 9, and we'll go from verse 15, and I want to make, I want to use the following three headings. First is we are freed to sacrifice. Second is that we are freed to be flexible. But, thirdly, in our freedom, we must strive. We're free to sacrifice, we're free to be flexible, but in our freedom we must strive, and each of those easily have for the gospel at the end of it. So first, we're free to sacrifice for the gospel. Before we do that, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news that is proclaimed. We thank you that you came into a world that needed you. You came in weakness. And took a penalty for us that we deserve. And so we pray that as we read your word today, we pray that that message would be the fuel for our understanding, that that would be what we look to as we seek to understand what Paul is saying to us, what you are saying to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we're free to sacrifice for the gospel. This is where we ended, essentially, if you're heard the last week's sermon um, last week. Uh, in looking at the final half of chapter 9, um, we'll continue from there, but last week we looked at a few headings. The first was we, we as Christians have rights, um, but that the gospel frees us from those rights. A bit of a paradox. We have rights, but the gospel frees us from our rights. If you look just a little bit back in chapter 8, verse 13, you'll see that Paul encouraged the Corinthians, uh, sorry, the, the Christians in Corinth, the Corinthians, to refrain from eating meat, if it would cause uh, their brother or sister to stumble um, while they were still weak in their faith. That is, the people within the congregation who were professing to be believers, but were, but were just coming out of their pagan lifestyles. The concern for Paul was that the, this practice of eating meat, may, that, that they might have been sacrificed to idols, may lead to the wrong belief by those weaker brothers and sisters, that idol worship was somehow compatible with worship resulting in the weak brother or sister falling away. Then, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, Paul demonstrated how he had a clear, God-ordained right to be supported by the church for his work in proclaiming the gospel. But in verse 12, and then again in verse 15, at the start of our passage today, he says, um, and particularly verse 12, he and Barnabas too, had given up this right to be paid for their work. Why? 
but as we saw, it was for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel. That is to ensure that they did not put any hindrance in the way of anyone genuinely hearing and accepting the saving message of Jesus. As we noted last week, Paul preached freely to set people free because he had been set free. That was his message, that was who he was. And we discovered that this, this apparent paradox that freedom provided through Jesus in the gospel was not a freedom for Paul to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to hashtag live the blessed life. The hashtag blessed life. <laughs> <laughs> or even to enforce something that he was entitled to. But it was, in fact, a freedom from his life. And like Paul, as Christians, we too are called to give up our individual rights for others because we too are free by the gospel. Unlike the way the world views rights, or sorry, the way we're, unlike the way the world views freedom, um, that is freedom from something, freedom from oppression, freedom from constraints, freedom from limitations. Christian freedom is not simply from something. It is, of course, from something. It's from sin, from the punishment we deserve for not keeping God's commands. But it's not just freedom from something. Christian freedom, the gospel, provides freedom for something. And I think this is where there's a helpful illustration in the problem that Megan Martha discovered on joining the British world. It seems Megan was looking for a life that reflected the apparent freedom that comes from the self-centered world of Hollywood, where she had come from. But she was suddenly confronted with a whole-scale life of sacrifice, living for the royal home and its responsibilities to the United Kingdom. <coughs> there are no doubt many factors at play in the rift. I don't, I don't doubt that. But I do want to make two particular observations, comparing Meg's search for freedom in her royal family and freedom found in Christ. First, I want to say Meg's view is understandable. She'd come from an apparent, a life of an apparent freedom. A life lived for herself and now her son Archie still appears to be the motivation for her life. Freedom for her was to be who she wanted to be. To do what she wanted to do. Perhaps just for the purpose of royalty. It was not to have the apparent cage of responsibility that became for her a suffocating existence. Second, service to the Queen's household is, at least on its face, certainly some, something of sacrifice to a noble cause. Those serving that cause are no doubt well compensated for their sacrifice. But when money and standing are insufficient compensation, the Queen can't provide any further freedom. The servant to her crown can either accept the responsibility and press on with whatever is available, skip up a bit and all that, or they can leave. But that is not the image that Paul was presenting of a freedom in Christ available in God's kingdom. God's kingdom, as usual, is flipped upon. Being freed from rights is just so counterintuitive. And clearly, it's not just our modern world that has an issue with this. The Corinthians are struggling with the same thing. And that's why Paul was at pains to make clear that the only reason that one could be freed from their rights, the only reason this was possible for a Christian, 
just because we're locked giving reality to the what Jesus Christ And so, in laying the foundation as Paul seemed to have done in the Corinthian heart, he would have had to have given them a background to this gospel. He would have had to have laid down exactly what it was um, that, that God had done. Well, we don't know exactly what he said, obviously, that's not what we don't have his opening sermons to the Corinthian church to say, hey, guys, this is, what, this is what the gospel is, this is what Christianity is all about. We know he would have had to lay out how humanity was created for the sole purpose of bringing glory to God. And that in that purpose, humanity was to be fully satisfied. He would have had to describe how humans chose to seek satisfaction in other places, selfishly wanting to live their lives their own way, failing to trust God and his promises, failing to trust that he would be fully satisfied. Or would have had to recount how humans rebelled and sought their own religion themselves in power and God's limitations. He would have had to describe how God in his perfection couldn't coexist with rebellion. But the only appropriate consequence for that rebellion was separation, his death. But Paul no doubt would have gone on to describe how God was patient and merciful to his creation, how he created a plan to restore and bring that creation back into right proper relationship. He would have described the history of the Jewish nation, how God made promises to restore the people, how he made demands of them to obey his laws and commands as they looked forward to this restoration. He would have described how God initiated methods of sacrifice to atone for their rebellion and to demonstrate the results of sin. The history would have been shared how people failed time and time again. Those people called to be God's people failed time and time again to obey God. Resulting in consequences that were difficult to take. Paul would have shown how people were incapable of keeping God's law, how they loved to live for themselves, how they deserved as a result to be removed from God's presence forever. But he would have shown how time and time again God maintained his promises to bring them back. And finally, Paul would have told them about Jesus, God's own son. Paul would have described how Jesus perfect human, to live a perfect life of obedience to God's laws. As Jesus called to himself a new people, he taught them about himself, calling them to imitate him as he loved and cared for other people in this world. Once again, perfectly demonstrating how humans can be fully satisfied in bringing glory to God. Paul would have ultimately described how Jesus died finally do away with the punishment that humanity deserves, fulfilling God's promises to bring humanity back into relationship with him, promising those who follow him to take that up for themselves, to enjoy an eternity with him. Paul knew that only this gospel, only this redemptive work of Jesus, could free someone from sinful rebellion from a life lived for the glorification of themselves and from the eternal consequences as a result from that rebellion. And if you know, that's news to you, I'd love to talk to you about it afterwards for free. But Paul also knew that only the gospel itself presented the freedom for sharing that gospel as the highest priority of life 
And so we see, as we look at the passage, that Paul carefully outlined his right of support in verse 1 to 3.14. Carefully articulated how he deserved to be supported. But as we read in verse 15, he says, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my time to rest. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground to rest. A necessity laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right. Granted, at the end of last week, when we read that passage, someone did kind of say, What? <laughs> what is Paul saying? Part of the reason it seems for Paul refusing to be supported in Corinth was because of the Corinthians' preoccupation with grace. You, you remember in chapter 1, we looked at uh, how the Corinthian church were comparing themselves to uh, saying, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow, I follow Paul. There was a preoccupation with great leaders, and Paul, uh, and there was an expect sorry, there was an expectation that if something was worth knowing, then it was worth being bought for the great price. As part of this way of thinking, in those days, rich people would become patrons of other people. And of course, patrons today are just basically famous people that add a bit of clout to a to a uh, charity's message. But in those days, patrons were the money behind a project, and as a result, they kind of got to own the project, they own the knowledge. Now Paul and Barnabas, this wasn't this wasn't okay. Those patrons might expect uh, Paul and Barnabas to say things in a particular way. They might expect them to um, to, to be in their corner. And so warnings or, or admonitions that Paul might give may not have been needed. Worst of all, other people may reject Paul's message entirely funded by one person as opposed to another, and would, it, and would put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul did not want that. So that's one reason why Paul uh, didn't take a pain. <coughs> but there's another more personal reason, and we get this through this passage as well. It's the reason why Paul would say he would rather die than give up a body. It's ground for boasting. To understand what Paul is saying, it's important to understand where Paul is coming from. You might remember in Acts 9 that, that Paul um, then went to Saul, was on his way with authority to imprison Jews, and started following a new teaching about Jesus called the way. His disciples have been sharing, Jesus' disciples have been sharing uh, the good news with anyone that would listen, and Paul wanted to stop it. While Paul was on the road to Damascus, Jesus himself appeared to Paul in a blinding light, and long story short, gave Paul a commission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the city. Paul had been an enemy of God. He was out to stop the spread of the gospel at all costs. Yet Jesus changed Paul's heart in an instant and sent him on a new course. A course that was not set by choice for Paul, but by 
black hole into the prostate cell. In a similar way, Paul describes uh, in, in Ephesians how Paul followed Jesus, doesn't he? You see, if you look to Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 10, you'll see that it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. And in Galatians 1, 15 to 16, Paul had applied that to himself again. Speaking of his own calling on the road to Damascus, he says, He who had set me apart before I was born, recognizing that this was a call from before Paul was even born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This background that we have of Paul to help us understand what is calling us and why he saw it as a gift of God. And as a result, why it became for him the most important thing in his life. It seems complicated, but what Paul's basically saying in 16 to 18 is that if he, in verse 16, if he preaches the gospel, he can't boast in the sense of taking payment, as though it was his own knowledge or wisdom that he could take credit for. Rather, his preaching and the message he proclaimed was a necessity. It was bound up with his own salvation as a gift from God. To Paul, this was so important that he would say, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He would say, Accursed is me if I did not do this. To not preach the gospel would be a fate worse than death. It was so bound up in his salvation that if he did not preach the gospel, it would be a disobedience. And would put in jeopardy his own salvation. In verse 17, there's effectively an illustration in the middle. He uses a comparison. If he preaches on his own will or voluntarily, then sure, he deserves a reward. He can be paid. But in Paul's mind, he's not preaching by choice. He preaches not of his own will, he preaches involuntarily as well. Though, of course, not unwillingly. Paul views his task of preaching as that of the faithful steward of a household. Effectively a slave, but willingly serving his master and succeeding when his master's task succeeds. And so we end with verse 18. What then is my reward? What then is my payment? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge and not use my right. So we come full circle, back to verse 15, we see that this boast that Paul would rather die for than give up was his deep and humble desire to be weak for the sake of the gospel. His boast, the thing that he would not give up, was that he would freely forego his rights for the sake of salvation of others, and so preach the gospel for free. Like the patrons in Corinth, Paul knew a great price needed to be paid the great knowledge that he had. But he was, but the message he was sharing, Paul recognized that he already had a great price paid for it. That had been by Christ. It had been paid by Christ, and Paul was not going to cheapen that by putting anything in the way of the knowledge going out freely, by being bought by one patron or another. In this, Paul imitated Christ, and as we see later in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, 
Well, that's going to take millions too. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we're encouraged to look to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, comparing our story to Meg, she appears to have given sacrifice to the ground to the crown a bit of a go, a few years. But she effectively found her service to be a page. She had lost all her apparent freedoms and was crushing it. Prince Harry was born into that life, but he too appears to have decided that service at all costs was not worth the pain that it was causing. But for Paul, in becoming a citizen of God's kingdom, with a clear understanding of the gospel, and obtained Jesus' amazing and merciful sacrifice and forgiveness in his place, the giving up of his price was not a loss of freedom. And so we move on to the second point. We are free to be flexible. We are free to sacrifice or recognize the freedom to sacrifice. Second point is we are free to be flexible. You will remember at the start of, verse, of chapter 19, Paul says in verse 1, Am I not free? And then sets about going, explaining um, our scripture just talked about. So in verse 19, Paul sets out another circumstance. <coughs> Exercise in freedom in the gospel, describing how he flexibly shares the gospel to anyone he can, as though a servant now to anyone. If you look to your Bibles at verse 19, it says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though not, my, not, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That I may share with them Again, if you forgive them for kind of going first reading, what? What is that mean? Paul generally <coughs> describes four groups of people. First two, first two are the Jews and those under the law. The Jews and those that have been entered into the Jewish faith and that were under the law. The second are those, or the, the, the third, are those outside the law, that is everyone else, the Gentiles. And the last is this general group of the weak. And this is not the first time in 1 Corinthians that Paul has entered into a comparison of the law and the commandments of God. In verse 7, 19, you might remember that Paul compared circumcision and keeping the commandments of God. He compared them. Of course, under the Mosaic, under the Mosaic law of the Old Covenant, the law laid by, down by Moses um, in the Old Testament, circumcision was something done in keeping the commandments of God. So, with reference to Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul helped us to identify J.R. Sorry, helped us to identify what Paul was saying, and, and that it was a change, and that a change in outward form, circumcision, did not make someone a follower of Christ. 
and therefore one of God's people, rather in a transformation through the work of the Spirit through the gospel. Keeping the commands of God then become visible outworking of that new change. It is not made a person a follower of God. In our passage today, Paul's making a similar point. This time being between those under or outside the law and being not outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. For each of these groups, Paul says, he becomes like them to win them. Now the thing that has tied theologians in knots over the years is what exactly the law of God and the law of Christ, as opposed to the law, actually is. At least clearly from our passage last week, Paul isn't one to say that all of the Mosaic law all of the Old Testament is no longer relevant to Christians. He himself referred to it as authority for why a worker presenting the gospel was entitled to be supported by the church. But at the same time, it seems clear that we cannot now simply take the Old Testament law and say that's how a Christian ought to live. Paul seems to be clear on that as well. So as with chapter 7, it seems that what Paul is getting at is the ceremonial circumcision, Sabbaths, that sort of thing. But, maybe a disappointment, but for the purposes of understanding the broader flow of Paul's argument today, I don't think we need to determine the full extent of what is in and out for the Christian. In fact, I think it would be unhelpful as we seek to live in freedom, as opposed to just following the rules. But, what is of definite importance is the discussion what Paul is not. With that, I'm going to use my knee as an illustration. <laughs> as you might be able to tell from sitting down, I don't have the free full movements and use of my knee at the moment. I recently had surgery, um, and since that time I've been restricted in my ability to use my knee to walk and to move in the way that my leg was designed to do. <coughs> The surgery was intended to fix an injury, an issue that I had before, that was itself limiting my use. But it has caused, in the meantime, a whole range of extra rules and things that I have to follow. For the first few days, I had a regime of icing my knee every hour, I had a large bandage wrapped around it, I couldn't shower, particularly I had to be cautious of my interactions with others, particularly my young children. I had to set up kind of clear guidelines around how they could interact with me. To aid my recovery, I was given a special set of restrictions that I had to do a couple of times a day. And I need to be careful now with how much I use my knee. I don't have the flexibility I usually have. I can't twist, I can't hop, I can't jump, I can't run. But my knee will recover. Once it has recovered, my knee will bend freely and without pain. I'll be able to get up and walk without really thinking about it. I'll be able to allow my children to run and jump on me and not be worried. My special regime of icing and stretching my knee will be done. I'll be able to jump and hop and run. In fact, my knee should be back to the way it was before my injury even occurred. I will have full and complete freedom the way my knee knee was designed. But even with that full freedom, I will still not be able to do certain things. 
I will not be able to bend my knee any way I like. I will not be able to sit like an emu. Bend my knees forward, suddenly, because I've had my surgery. <laughs> I will not be able to leap over tall buildings in a single bound because I've had my surgery. My knee, while being repaired and free, will be restricted to its natural capacity to bend and flex and move as it was designed to. My knee will be flexible, but it will have its natural limits. In a similar way, Paul wants to make clear that a Christian is to be flexible in their presentation of the gospel. But that flexibility still has limits. Paul says in his parenthetical statement, the ones in the brackets, that's the thing he says after I'm this, but I'm not this. He says in those that while there was an old covenant law, that Paul, though a Jew, is not now bound by it. The law was there, he is not bound by it. There is a new covenant in Christ that does apply to the Christian today. There is still a way of living that is in accordance with God's character that the Christian is now called to follow in their freedom in Christ. Which is why earlier in chapter 6, Paul could say, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice sexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such are some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. This limit is important. Some people have read these passages to say that Paul is permitting absolute flexibility in seeking the unity of Christ. They look at Christ's law of love as being all-encompassing and requiring the Christian to be ready to reshape the gospel, save as who God is, in order to convince people to follow him. But in line with the context of our passage, this is exactly what Paul is not We would not hear, for example, Paul saying, to the liar I became like a liar, or to the drunkard I became like a drunkard. Or to the woke, I became as though woke. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't fit. Or Paul was willing and ready to be flexible in whatever cultural context he was called into in order to present the gospel to those people. He was clear in his understanding of what Christianity was and what it wasn't, so that he knew when he could be flexible and when he could bend it. Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life. And if no one comes to the Father except by him, then there is, no, there is a need for that to be maintained. The gospel is countercultural in its nature. The gospel stands in judgment over culture. And so there cannot simply be an appeal to the preservation and respect of culture as a demand on the Christian to be more flexible. That continues to be a challenge for all of us as we engage in the world. As a result, we must continue to read, to memorize, to be saturated with God's word, discovering more and more of God's character, how he reveals himself and what he expects of his people, so that we can be clear on what and who we are presenting to the world. The unhindered gospel, unhindered proclamation of the gospel is our main goal. 
that we must be ready to lay aside our preferences, our rights to be comfortable, clean, respected, even admired, so that the gospel shines through. But it must be the gospel as it pleases. Some examples. Hudson Taylor in China in the last century. After a time of sharing the gospel in China, he started to wear his hair long and braided like the Chinese men of the time. He started to wear their clothes as if he had food. As a result, many of his fellow missionaries derided him. But Hudson Taylor had considered carefully his practices. He thought through what was essential to the gospel and what was therefore non-negotiable. What was a cultural form that would make it easy to wear, and might in fact be unnecessary, uh, be an unnecessary barrier to the effective, the effective proclamation of the gospel. Bringing it home, we have similar considerations that we need to consider now. We interact with many cultures but, but importantly, the particular issue that we face in the territory and in all of Australia is how we interact with Aboriginal Australia. Great work has been done over the years of getting the word of God into the hands and into the languages of brothers and sisters in remote parts of Australia who speak English as a second, third, or even sixth language. How many people understand it? How many people apply it? But a popular cry is that missionaries and governments wielding missionaries as instruments of social change have simply sought to replace indigenous culture with a Western one cause many very problems. But they say that the church in sharing the gospel has caused the division. We can't untangle this path today. But there will be things for us to consider as a church and as individuals as we reach out to um, Aboriginal Australians with the gospel. Mm-hmm. Acknowledge as a country and as elders past, present, and future. Dreaming stories and in names, poison relationships, gender roles, traditional punishment, forgiveness. All of these things are live issues that we'll need to wrestle with in presenting the gospel. Where can we appropriately focus to accommodate Aboriginal culture so as not to put a hurdle in the way of the gospel? And where must we think of concrete resolves to ensure that the gospel What about Kosovo? What about this one? This weekend is the product of a traditional holy day, right? Celebrated by the early church probably a couple of hundred years after Jesus' return to heaven. There is no biblical mandate for us to celebrate. It may have been an act of flexibility by the church to try to draw attention from a pagan festival and point people. A genuine question for the Christian today is whether in celebrating Easter we are in fact being flexible in our presentation of the gospel, or whether we are allowing culture or tradition to tell us how the gospel ought to be presented. I mean, who even knows who Eosta and her sacred heritage are? Reaction be if someone said there was no longer any cultural need to celebrate Easter. If the church pulled out of Easter, <coughs> would the Easter be right? 
But in coming back to verses 20 and 21, on the first read, it seems a bit unusual that Paul, who was in fact born a Jew, would say that he becomes like a Jew. And a similar conundrum arises with Paul saying he becomes like a Gentile, because Paul was also a Roman citizen by birth. So, of course, as a Jew, the Roman citizen part would have, you know, that would have been the side thing. As the Old Covenant was concerned, as far as the Old Covenant was concerned, being a Jew meant being one of God's people, so it was of utmost importance. But while Paul emphasizes that he does not now identify himself strictly as a Jew, it doesn't mean he now strictly becomes a Gentile either. Paul has become a third of He now identifies himself as a Christian. And whether people he comes across are part of God's old covenant or whether they are people who are not. In all circumstances, Paul makes himself flexible within their culture in order to win as many as possible for Christ. And we'll see examples of that if you go through the Old Testament, Paul still using circumcision for Timothy, but not in other circumstances, still um, allowing uh, to be beaten by the Sanhedrin for offending Jewish law yet at other times. Standing on his Roman citizenship to avoid it. Paul uses the circumstances to present the gospel freely, but none of those binds him. So, what about this fourth category? In relation to this group, Paul changes what he says slightly. With each other group, Paul says that he became like the Jews, he became like those under the law, and like those not. But for the weak, he became weak. Now, some have read this <coughs> to refer back to chapter 8, the weak brother. But I think that seems unlikely. It wouldn't really make sense for Paul to say, in order to win people to Christ, um, he became like someone who professed to believe in Christ but was still fragile in his faith. But it doesn't seem to have any sense. It doesn't seem necessary. More likely, this is a reference to the approach to his gospel growth that Paul has set out in chapter 9 so far. How Paul chooses to take a low standing in society. How he chooses not to be paid for his labor for the gospel. And how he takes on a laborer's role at his life. As we saw earlier, Paul went to great lengths to make his lifestyle a picture of Christ's sacrifice. Paul was willing to become all things to all people, employing all means that he had available to present the gospel to everyone and to save as many as possible for Christ. Say it again. Paul was willing to become all things to all people, employing all the means he had available to present the gospel to everyone and to save as many as possible for Christ. What a life story. <laughs> Now it's interesting that Paul concludes this section by saying he does it all to share in the gospel's blessings. Again, you might expect him to say that he does it all so that they might share in the gospel's blessings. But he doesn't. Why? Paul recognized there was no other way to be a Christian. This servant lifestyle, for the sake of the gospel, 
was living in the highlight. All that he does is aimed at promoting the gospel. And following Christ means he would take up his cross and follow him. He would die to his own self-interest and live for the interests of the one who brought him. That meant living to share the good news with others at the cost of his own rights and striving to win as many as possible no matter their circumstances or situations. Paul recognised that it was God's plan to send Jesus to take the curse to redeem his people. Paul recognised that Jesus came to bring a new covenant for God's people. The old law with its legal stipulations had been renewed in the law of love. A love for God and created a love for others a love that was self-sacrificial in response to God's love. For Paul, to do otherwise would be to live as though the gospel had done nothing in his life, as though he himself had not been saved. Which takes us to our final point. In our freedom, we must strive for the gospel. So far in chapter 9, Paul has challenged the Corinthians desire to continue to have one foot in each hand. To live for their own interests and for Christ's. After describing his freedom to give up his rights and his freedom to give up his lifestyle, all for the sake of others and their reception of the gospel, Paul brings this section home with a reference that fits well within the church. 24 to 27, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in everything. They daily to receive a perishable gift. But we So do not run aimlessly. Do not box as one is using the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I didn't appreciate it at the time, but I've been in an aimless race and sure. Years gone by, I've competed in the Australian Unicycle Championships. Yeah, Unicycle Championships. In one year, I entered into a cross-country race in Canberra. I didn't intend, attend the competition particularly well-trained. I certainly was not trained for the mountain that I was to ride on, having only been from the lofty peaks of Darwin. <laughs> I also did not go in to the race well prepared. I had forgotten my hammer bag, but I wore it back backwards. And I only had a small water bottle to carry with me. My mindset at the time was, well, this is all just a bit of fun, right? I've come all this way to race, and I don't want to miss out. I was encouraged that my brother, who's here today, was in the race with me in similar circumstances. And so, you know, overall, my thoughts were, and she'll be right, I've got this. I started well. I held my own in the middle of the pack. It was cool, it was a light drizzle. I figured my water bottle would give me all I needed to press on. Up and up this mountain. About halfway up the mountain, a friend who was also in the race, we had a chat of chuckled about me being puffed, and as he was overtaking me, he gave me a bit of a sip of his Powerade and checked in, you know, going to be okay. You know, I'll be fine. Of course, there's no response. 
I got to the top of the mountain. <coughs> my water bottle was empty by now. I was busy rationalizing in my mind why the ascent was harder than I expected it to be, and how I could possibly be as close to being as I was. And then I saw it, a sign. Water. The water was cool and refreshing. I gulped it down as well as I could while panting. I filled my water bottle, and at this point I had a choice. I could gently ride back down the hill that I'd just come up. I would be disqualified for death. But I would arrive back with most of only my prize wounds. Or <laughs> there was the rest of the race. I was pretty sure I was at the top. I was pretty sure the rest of the ride would surely be downhill from here. It was probably you know, about halfway. It probably wouldn't make any difference which way I went. And look, I'm in a race. I don't want to miss out on the opportunity to finish. So, I pressed on. The tap was not halfway. It was a long way from halfway. The track did not just go downhill either. I mean, it did, but it went up a lot. My small water bottle quickly emptied. I could ride for a short time, but because I was so tired, the smallest rock or hole would knock me off my I found it more energy efficient to ride than to walk, but the energy it took to get onto my saddle became impossible. I had no choice but to trudge along, pushing my inside. I got thirstier and thirstier. My legs were heavy. I genuinely, or at least delusionally, wondered if I was actually going to make it. <laughs> it was starting to get late. I recognized my colleagues. I knew I was an idiot. I also worried for my brother, who was trudging behind me in a similar state. <laughs> we had clearly not entered this race to succeed. We eventually made it to the finish line um, yesterday, completely exhausted. The race was well and truly finished when we got back, and it was thoroughly <coughs> disqualified. Now, in the circumstances of the Australian Unicycle Championships, this sort of approach, entering a race without expecting to win, is kind of hard. Really, the competition is a give it a go. Come and, come and ride your bike. Not that theory. But in our case, when we entered a race that was particularly demanding, and we were not physically prepared for it, when we approached it aimlessly, and we're not really out to race, but just sort of to go for a ride in race conditions, then our reason for being disqualified in that race could have been far more serious than we anticipated. That's the image. Paul presents for us in this final discussion on how our freedom in the, in the gospel ought to play out. In our freedom, we must still strive for the prize. That seemed a bit of an unusual analogy, I suppose, in the circumstances, Paul ending with this sport um, idea. But he's no doubt looking to the Isthmian Games, which were held in Corinth every two years. It was a bit like the Olympics, and probably they had similar runners. And competitors, competitors in this competition were going to strict training for it. In fact, it's recorded that they would swear an oath at the outset of the games that they comply with strict regimes, eating and even sexual behaviour in the months leading up to the games. They were dedicated to what they were doing. Competing in these games was an exercise of self-control. It was all done with an eye on the prize, but for the competitors, that prize was simply a risk. 
and the glory of the arena. And it's the depleted moment that they for that laughter. But it drove them to extreme devotion. So Paul took this image as a way of bringing home the examples he had already given the Corinthians of how to live their lives. He was obviously well aware that it was not an easy thing to tell them to give up their rights and their lifestyles for the sake of the gospel the sake of those who needed to hear them. He was well aware that it would require self-control to stay on task, that it would require discipline. Paul was aware that there would be a temptation to turn, to live for other things, that there would be moments, or perhaps long periods of time, that they wanted to give it all up. But he recognised that the prize that was being pursued the goal of the all striving was of eternal significance. Of course, Paul was clear and recognized that Christians could be assured of their salvation. They are in fact free. Christians have a freedom won by Christ's work on the cross. And God will hold on to them. And look back at 1 Corinthians 1, 8-9, but Paul earlier reminded the Corinthians of the testimony of Christ in their life. And how Jesus would sustain them to the end, guiltless in the day of their Lord Jesus Christ, as they waited for his coming again. So Paul did not want the Corinthians to be complacent in this. Paul was challenging the members of the Corinthian church who were, in their freedom, trying to continue to walk a line between having their idol meat cake and eating it too. And it was telling them, and he was telling them, this is your freedom. Initially, the warning was to steer clear for the sake of their brothers and sisters who might be led back into paganism, the weak brothers and sisters of chapter 8. But in these verses, Paul's warning begins to get a bit more pointed towards the Corinthians themselves. Paul strongly warns them that their freedom in Christ was not to create an enemy like that. He tells the church not to amble along in their freedom. Not to simply engage in the race for the sake of a ride. Not to enter the boxing ring and shadow box. But as the elite athletes do, to run and compete, but actually seeking to win the prize. Of course, he's not saying there's only one person that will win the prize. All Christians will win the prize, but run as though you, individual Christian, Paul's words were not intended to be a defeating blow. They were intended to be an encouragement, a challenge to press on. And as with earlier, Paul places himself alongside those who, to whom he's in his sharing. Just as he shares in their hope to join in the final blessings of the gospel for eternity, he too shares in the struggle to strive for that prize. Even Paul, who was called by Jesus himself, did not simply rest on his of his call. Paul himself described having beat his body into submission as he gave up his life and bore the hardship of that to the cross. As he made himself weak to demonstrate Christ's greatness and humility, he had to exercise self control. Paul longed for the prize, he longed for others to have the he wanted to warn the Corinthians to press on for the prize and not for some other inferior goal, which would ultimately disqualify them from the race 
which may reveal to them that they were not, in fact, Christians. We too have been called to a higher life of service. A life that includes self-control and the willingness to endure hardships for the sake of the gospel. For at least some of the Corinthians, and let's face it, the new contemporary Christians today, there has been a loss of the sight of being involved. There are many Christians who have begun to run aimlessly, if they were ever in the context at all. Are we tempted to do the same? To float along in our freedom as it were? To take a walk to smell the roses rather than to beat down the track? Are we tempted to say that Christ has done all the work, so there's nothing for me to do? Do we even tell anyone about Jesus, let alone make sure our lives don't get in the way of that <coughs> If this is you, look to Christ. Look to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of your faith. On the other hand, how often are we tempted to take the approach of Meg and Harry to say, this is all a bit too much. I think I deserve some space. How often do we think, I can't really be expected to be everything to everything. I can't give up all my rights for the sake of the gospel and its faith presentation. Can I? Maybe despite our attempts to sacrifice and be flexible for others, things remain hard. Temptation persists. We look to others around us and think, our lives don't appear to be as easy as this. And we might even begin to despair. This is you. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of your heart, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross for you. As I said last week, if we, like Paul, are going to be able to give up our right and loving humility to serve others as we call Christ, if we are going to be able to flex our lifestyles beyond our comfort zone to share the gospel with others, if we are to become weak in order to win the weak, then we must first be won over by a greater love of Christ, the love that he has shown us through the cross. The greatest show of weakness the world has ever seen. Anything less than Christ as our motivation will ultimately produce nothing it is only when we are won over by a greater love of Christ as that our sacrifice, our flexibility, and our striving will produce genuine joy in our lives as we are satisfied in bringing glory to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful again. Thanks for the sacrifice that you gave for us. As unusual as that comes from, we're thankful that you gave yourself for us. We're thankful for the freedom that you give us. We're thankful that we are made whole. 
Lord as we reflect on these words, as we consider our own lives, as we consider how we might sacrifice or at least approach sacrifice, how we might approach our flexibility, as we consider our striving for the gospel, Lord, would you challenge us this morning? Would you continue to speak through your words to us as we sing? Thank you.